Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy second birthday to Joe. Happy birthday to me. Here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. Morning, you're watching The Road to Concord with former Marine Joe Bakanovic. Homeroom is on Rumble. You just go to Rumble and you search the channels for The Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you <laughs> click follow. It might mean you got to set up an account. <laughs> I got him! It's fast, it's easy, and it's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and sometimes on YouTube. That's when the professor won't get himself censored. Uh, that's usually just Wednesdays. Then you can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, and sometimes on BitChute if it ever works right. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page. It's roadtoconcord.com. That's where you'll find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at the road to concord.com. He's a little slow. Yeah, he's got several emails that are sitting in the queue, but he'll eventually get around to emailing you back. I have an excuse. What's yours? Phones are on today, 229-469-0335, but only for registered numbers. We only accept calls from regular known listeners. If you wish to call in and are a regular known listener, you may request phone access through an email. If you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Just warn them that Joe is... A former Marine. <laughs> this show is listener sponsored, meaning you do not. We, 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 yeah. <laughs> Businesses ain't going to give us no money, so we need it from you. And so we ask for your participation on a value for value basis. If you find our show of value to you, then you provide an equivalent portion of your labor and treasure through the donut link on the Road to Concord blog page, the show description on Rumble, and the comments on the other streams. Hey, we all know T.A. Charlie isn't all there. Now, just think Good luck today, folks. You'll soon realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. We're free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. Well, Charlie, we have to start with a message. From Radio Free Computer. Yes, we do. Free free computer. To our friend behind enemy lines in the occupied territory of Georgia. We have received your message. We are keeping our eyes focused on the eastern horizon. Same as you are. Our eyes are focused on the eastern horizon. If you have ears to hear to our friend in occupied Georgia, you now know that, you know, your message was received and understood, and we agree with you. We'll now return you to your regular scheduled programming here on Radio Free Computer. <laughs> yes, and in case you guys didn't know, like, you know, there's a birthday coming up. Tomorrow! Somebody is just, yeah. What do you guys in the Air Force have? Skirts? <laughs> We've got crayons. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Marine Corps birthday. The Marine Corps might have canceled the birthday ball, but I'm not canceling it. For those of you who um, are not yet aware, um, uh, there'll be no show tomorrow, November 10th. 
Joe is taking the day off to celebrate the, his second birthday with BB in the Marine Corps. So we will run your scroll there across the bottom of the screen whenever I or Charlie think about it. That way everybody doesn't tune in tomorrow expecting us to be on donuts going, where the heck are they? I will be celebrating my birthday, stuffing crayons down my throat or crayon looking like donuts. I don't know. It'll depend on what, whether or not BB lets me have any. So we'll see. She may and she may not. All right. It's Throwback Thursday. And I told you we were going to throw back. Today, we are going to throw way back to the history of Israel from the beginning. But first, if you go to your show notes, folks, you know, the road to concord.com, that's where I put up a blog post sometimes whenever we have notes for you, your homework. I've got it up here today. It's not a big long one. There's a little video clip for you there. There's a PDF file slide presentation. There's a little bit of extra related material. You'll also find that I put the link in your homework back to our show on the history of Palestine, because that's going to be important. And we went over this, well, it was all the way back on October 10th. I didn't realize that that's already a long time ago. Jeez, oh, wheeze, man. But you can go back to your show notes and you can refer to that stuff after the show is over. But for today, for now, <clears throat> excuse me, we are going to do our presentation on the history of Israel. And we're going to start with the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, right? Why are we going all the way back there, Joe? If you will please kindly stick with me today, boys and girls, I will explain to you why this is so important. If you want to understand what's going on in the Middle East today, you got to go back to Abraham. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Anybody, folks, boys, girls, listen up, class, eyeballs, snap, zero, look right here. Whenever I say zero or eyeballs, you say snap, you look right at me. If you can see the chalkboard, you know, the screen, me, look at me here. Anybody who tries to explain the current conflict in the Middle East that does not go back to Abraham doesn't understand it or they're trying to deceive you. If they don't start with Abraham, they are not very good sources of information on this issue. It doesn't matter whether or not you believe this. All that matters is that the people over there fighting each other believe it, and they do. So it's kind of like, well, I don't need to know about, uh, uh, you know, Padme and Anakin to understand what's going on with Luke and, and Leia. Yeah, like, right, okay, whatever. Good luck with that. Yeah, you kind of have to know who Daddy and Mommy are and how they got together in order to understand the children's story. Well, what's going on between Israel and Palestine are the children of Abraham, and those folks know it. So. Abraham, the father of all who believe. <clears throat> Folks, that's just not the, you know, that's not just Christians and Jews. And that's Muslims too. What? Yeah, see, I told you, you got to go back to the beginning. This here is just a rough graph. It's not the best in the world for you.
cool stuff, guys. All right. Where are we going here? This is just another timeline I gave you just to give it a rough idea where you're at here. You have Abraham over here, 2166 BC. And then Jacob flees to Haran. And then Esau remains in Canaan. That's important. We're going to be talking about Esau. Isaac dies. Joseph rises in Egypt. There's a little period in here in the middle. Israelites build these cities in Egypt. The high date of the Exodus, 1446. I tend to go with that one, the older date. The low date is 1230. This is the one the world likes to keep. And then Samuel. This is just a rough idea where you're at in relation to the Bible timeline. The origins of the Middle East dispute. It's all about physical inheritance and spiritual allegiances. What? Spiritual allegiances. No, Joe, it's got nothing to do with religion. It's got everything to do with religion. Even the inheritance has to do with religion. Now, we're going to start right here. Y'all know, real quick, you know that Israel is an occupier and they have just illegally taken the land of the Palestinians. That's the claim, right? Okay, you little... This is why I told you, if you don't have somebody going back to the beginning, you're not listening to somebody who understands this problem deeply enough to explain it to you. Genesis 20, verses 14 through 16. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech had taken Sarah to be his wife, even though she was married to Abraham. Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah, he said, look, I have given you a brother, uh, you you and your brother, a thousand pieces of silver. It is your vindication before all who are with you and before everyone you are that you are cleared. What's this got to do with anything? Well, this is the land of where they're at at the time. That little yellow piece right there, that's Philistines. Today's Palestine. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. See the Canaanites? So that little yellow area on your screen, that's today's Palestine. Abraham was in Palestine at the time. The king said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. Abimelech. This is from Wikipedia. It's just the generic name given to all Philistine kings in the Hebrew Bible from the time of Abraham through King David. The king of Philistine gave Abraham his de- and his descendants permission to live in the land. Whoopsie, modern-day Palestinians. If you'll read the rest of the biblical story, you'll find out that what happens is Abraham's people are very fruitful. In other words, they're good little rabbits, just like they were commanded earlier in the book of Genesis. And they have more children than the Philistines. And God, Yahweh, blesses Abraham's descendants. So their cattle and their sheep multiply. And eventually the king is like, oh, hey, my people are jealous of you. So I got to redig on this promise I made. And then they start fighting over the land from that point. After the king had already given it to him. I got a little newsflash for you, boys and girls. In the olden days, if the king gave a decree like that, he's not allowed to go back on it unless Abraham does something to violate the agreement, which he did not do. So any land that Israel occupies today was given to them by the king of the Philistines, modern-day Palestine, eons ago. End of argument, right? Eh, Wrong. (laughs) But it is where this all comes from. And now here we start with the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. 
Okay, this got nothing to do with today, Joe. This got everything to do with today. Everything. Let me explain. So Yahweh comes along, God, and he's giving all these promises to Abraham. And Abraham says, well, <laughs> how's that going to work? I don't have a son, you know, and I've got to give him all my property. My heir is this, this foreigner I've adopted into my house. And Yahweh says, don't worry, I'm going to give you a son. So, you know, he gets all these blessings and Yahweh goes away. And Abraham's wife says, well, <laughs> Yahweh's taking his sweet time. So I'm going to do it my way here. Have my hand made the Egyptian. Take her as a wife. Go, go, go make a child for me. That's Hagar, you know, Sarah's Egyptian handmaid. So Hagar gets pregnant and now Sarah's jealous because Hagar says, well, I had a child and Sarah couldn't. So, you know, I'm above her. And the women start getting, you know, have a squabble. And Abraham says, well, she's your handmaid. Do what you want with her. So Hagar flees because she's afraid of Sarah. And God, Yahweh runs into Hagar and says, where are you going? He says, get your booty back. You're, you're going to have a child and I'm going to bless him. And he's going to have, he's going to become the king, you know, the father of 12 nations. Ooh, gee, 12. Where does that number come from? Anyhow, his name's going to be Ishmael. So they go back. Now, what eventually happens is God gives Sarah a son, a natural born, firstborn son of the true wife. So Ishmael is technically the bastard child. And then Sarah has Isaac. And all the promises are going to go through Isaac's line. Well, Ishmael's jealous. He's envious because he's just been disinherited. He's just lost all the land and everything that was promised to Abraham. So this is all about physical material things, not spiritual things. So what's going to happen is over time, Ishmael's going to try to reclaim and restore himself on his own, just like Sarah did when she gave Hagar to Abraham to make a child. Every time you do it your way and not God's way, it goes sideways. So this is what's happening here with Ishmael. This is a little thing that we need to read right here. This is from Genesis 16, 12. This is God's prophecy over Ishmael when he's talking to Hagar. He says, but he will be, talking about Ishmael, her son, who's in her, in her womb at this time, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live in defiance of all his brothers. Oh, boy. If you think this is not important, you don't know what's going on in the world here. Let me share something with you. Go over here. Bring this up. Whoop, they took it away from me. See, this is what happens, folks. I had this earlier today. This is a link to... Well, hold on. We're going to find this. I want you to stick with me. This is actually important. Let's go back up to the original. This is the story on Palestine. Uh, I don't know if this is a WordPress thing or what, but uh, it took this away from me. And there should be a page in here about Ishmael and Isaac. Oh, no, that was originally in the story on the Muslims. Dang it, man. I hate when this happens. I'm sorry. This is another link that's been scrubbed on us. In the homework where we did the story on the history of Islam, there's a page in there. It's a pig PDF file. I save it on my computer and I keep linking it and putting it up and they keep pulling it down. It's been done again here in real time. It was working earlier this morning before the show. They don't want you to see this information. They'll tell you it's disinformation because it was written primarily by Muslims. 
they trace their lineage back to Abraham through Ishmael. Now, this is going to be very important. If you've ever run into um, the thing about the toes and the feet in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, I've told you that I think that that's talking about um, Islam and secular humanism. And they do trace their their bloodlines through, you know, the seed of man and everything. It's It, it fits, and I'll show you why in a minute. But it, it, it just fits the pattern. It doesn't mean it's the accurate one and only way of looking at this. But every time I try to share this document, and if you ever get a chance to grab it, snag it off the computer and put it in your phone or your computer. You'll want it for future reference. They purge this thing all the time. It's true. It's accurate. I've researched it. It is true. But it comes from both of a biblical and Muslim perspective. The point is Muhammad traces through Ishmael. Why is that so important? Ishmael is the father of all Arab nations. Arabs, wild donkeys of a man. Well, keep paying attention. This is at the heart of what we're dealing with, folks. It's not just Ishmael. Enter the second part of the problem. The conflict between Esau and Jacob. Okay. Ishmael is the illegitimate son. But Esau is the firstborn of he's the firstborn of Isaac. He's supposed to have the inheritance, but he doesn't give a rat's rip about spiritual things or an inheritance. And he sells his inheritance to his younger brother, Jacob, for a bowl of soup. Yeah, lentil soup, you know, vegetable soup. And he gets disinherited in the long run. He, he Jacob takes his inheritance. Now, it's by deception. Don't get me wrong. I understand that. But later on, when Esau's all wrought, he goes to his father and he says, please, father, you know, give me a blessing. And Jacob blesses Esau, but it's actually a prophecy. And this is from Genesis 27, 39 through 40. Since Isaac said to him, says to Esau, no dew from heaven for you. So no blessing for you, no prosperity from the land, no fertile fields for you. So Esau's descendants are not going to be very good farmers. You will live by your sword, but your brothers, but be your brother's slave. Yet when you rebel, you will break away from his control. There's another place where it says when Jacob lays down, Esau will shake the yoke off of his neck. Why is all this important? Because of this. Esau goes and marries his lineage into Ishmael's line. And Esau and Ishmael become the Arabs. One of them is religiously based, Ishmael. Esau isn't. So Ishmael is going to be apostasy. Esau is going to be secular humanism. It's all about the material. Both of them marry into the Arabs. They're not the same bloodlines. And they are in conflict with each other even within this group. The Arabs fight each other when there's nobody else to fight. This is just a cabal of mess right there. But this is the source of the, that is the, those are your Palestinians. That's where they come from. Modern day Palestinians, not the original Philistines. These are the modern day Palestinians. They come from the Arab lines. Now for me, I look at it this way and I got a little note down here. This is part of the way I look at these disputes. And as such, it's merely meant to help understand the spiritual nature of the peoples who come from these men. Jacob later to be renamed Israel by God, by Yahweh, he's the faithful. Now, he's originally, he's a rebellious son, and he's a, he's, he's known supplanter. He's, he's a little trickster. 
but he comes to honor and obey his father, in this case, Yahweh, spiritual father. Ishmael, he represents apostasy. He's the disinherited or quote-unquote cheated son who seeks to restore himself and his, his inheritance on his own. Hence, Muhammad creates the Antichrist religion. In other words, spiritually, their people are so angry with Yahweh that they're going to take it all back on their own, just opposite of everything Yahweh does. That is religious anger right there at Yahweh. Esau, he's materialism, secular humanism. The rebellious son who has no concern for his inheritance. He gets mad at his spiritual father because he's not given what he wants. He's related to Nimrod. Spiritually, he's related to Nimrod, who's related to the Nephilim. All of this is about rebellion versus faithfulness. And all of this is fighting over the inheritance, the land. And again, whether you agree with these origins or not is irrelevant. The antagonists believe it. The people, the descendants of these three men, Jacob, Ishmael, and Esau, believe this with all their heart. And that's all that matters. The dispersions of the Hebrew people. What's this got to do with it? Listen, pay attention. These migrations are a fulfillment of prophecy. You've seen them before when we did the class on the Scythians. Now that we've got groundwork laid, this, folks, when I tell you this show builds on itself, if you miss a class, you're missing a lot because I cannot keep going back and recovering all this stuff in detail. I can only reference it. We did a class on the Scythians. We've done a class on the Palestinians. We've done a class on the Muslims. I give you the origin of all these things. So I'm going to show you a few maps here now. You've seen them before when we were talking about the Scythians. But, but first, this is you've seen this passage from the Bible too. This is important. This is all related to the struggle today. Listen to me. I'll bring it together for you in the end. Please stay with me. You get through this class, you will understand what's going on in the Middle East. You will. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. This is right after God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. So he says, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as the sand, which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Seed, his descendants. This is not just through Isaac. The promises will go through those people, through the Hebrews. But it's also going to include Ishmael and everybody else that comes from Ishmael. And then even after that, Abraham, when Sarah dies, Abraham still has more children. These people all come from Abraham. Spiritually, they are important. If you look at this secularly, none of this will make any sense to you. You look at this spiritually, it will all line up. Now, this is the next part that we got to have in my understanding. This is Jacob, the man Israel, blessing his sons. This one comes from his blessing to Joseph, Deuteronomy 33, 17. Joseph has the strength of a bull, the horns of a wild ox. His horns are Manasseh or Manasseh, thousands, and Ephraim's ten thousands. With them, he gores the nations and pushes them to the ends of the earth. Okay, what's all this got to do with anything? 
Abraham's descendants are going to be just countless. And a lot of them are going to forget who they are. That's in prophecy too. We've covered that. Joseph is the key, especially Ephraim, because he's the stronger of the two sons. But Joseph is going to push. Joseph, the leader of the northern kingdom, going to push the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles. He's just going to push everybody, the peoples, all to the ends of the sea, ends of the earth, as far west as you can go. In other words, he's going to push the Hebrew people into the Gentile lands throughout the whole world, essentially seeding the world with the faithful remnant that goes with these people. And they become little bitty lights, little candles in each of these areas of the world, each of these nations, teaching you about Yahweh and how to worship him. Because no matter where the apostate groups go, there's always a little remnant with them. It's always, the scripture suggests it's one-tenth part. One in ten will be faithful. And they become a light to the world. And through them, the world is blessed, just like they were promised. It's also a promising of the Messiah. So here's, this is the first beginning. It comes out of Egypt. So Abraham's dead, you know, and, and Jacob and all, Isaac died. They're all in, you know, Jacob's about to die, but they're, they're in Egypt. This is before the Exodus. They start coming out of that area. The Danites and a few of the other tribes, they go to Troy and Greece. They take over the, le the, the, the leadership, the royal families, the leadership families of these areas of Greece. So when Greece becomes an enemy to the Hebrew people under Alexander, those are apostate Hebrews running the nation. Alexander could probably trace his lineage back to the Danites. These are the Huguenots. From there, when they get defeated out of Troy, they're going to go to Rome. They will supplant most of the lineage of what will become the Caesars. From there, they go to Iberia, the Spain. They will supplant what will eventually become the leadership of the Spanish people there. From there, they go to I Iberian Ireland, and then they take over. The Saxons will meet them from the east. They, they go around the West Angle up to Ireland and into England. The Saxons, who are also Scythians, Northern Kingdom, they're going to come around from the West, um, from the east. So it's West and East. Everybody's going to center, central, centralize on England, but they're going to push everybody there. And from there, they're going to go to the New World, West, 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 just like the scripture said hundreds, thousands of years before it happened. So now this is the migration during Israel's wandering. This is the exodus. This is why they lose people during that 40-year period. They're very productive, very fruitful, fertile people. They have lots of children, and their children live. That's a promise from Yahweh. Well, this is more exodus into the Mediterranean land. Upwards of a million people, they think, might have left the desert during the wandering. In these times, back in this time, 1400 B.C., a million people is a buttload of people. That's enough to start nations, which is exactly what they did. The formation of the nation of Israel. It's already started. But prior to this point in history, Israel was a people, not a nation. They were a, it, they're a nation in the sense of kindredness. But they were actually not even cohesive. They were just individual tribes. And there was a little bit of tribalism about the, the, the Hebrew people. This gets us to the conquest of Canaan. They're coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. God tells them to go into Canaan. Pay attention. This is where we start the formation of the nation of Israel. We already have problems with the people who are living in Canaan. They want that land for themselves. But the Philistine king gave it to Abraham, and Abraham's just grew into it. So they've gone back on their promise. You got, you know, 
Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18, the destruction of the Canaanites. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave anything that breathes alive. Notice it's not just the people, the animals. You purge this land. Instead, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they will not teach you to do all the same detestable practices of theirs, which they had done for their gods, by which you would sin against the Lord your God. This is why the death penalty is given in the law, so that you will remove the evil from amongst you. Well, God continues. This is Numbers 33, 50 through 56. The law of possessing the land. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from you and destroy all their idolatrous sculptures, destroy all their cast metal images, and eliminate all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given it to the land to you to possess. You shall maintain the land as an inheritance by lot according to your families. To the larger, you shall give more inheritance. To the smaller, you shall give less inheritance. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, this shall be his. You shall pass on land as an inheritance according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from you, then it will come about that those who you let remain of them will be like thorns in your eyes and like pricks in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And just as I plan to do to them, I will do to you. God planned the destruction of these peoples. Israel didn't obey, so he's going to destroy them. Are you telling me that God had a hand in the destruction of Israel? Yes, for the exact same reason. Apostasy, paganism, idolatry. And now it says that this is only why you're living in the land. This is true. But after the new covenant, the land of Israel is no longer bordered. It's spiritual. Now, don't get me wrong. The Holy Land is still important. But what that means, though, is this battle will become spiritual amongst all people who align themselves with or against Yahweh. So wherever the people who align with Yahweh are, the Canaanites will be. And wherever you find the people of Yahweh, you will find signs of the Canaanites. You know, like you'll find a bull, and he'll be connected to material gain. You know, like the bull of Wall Street. You'll find child sacrifice. You know, like celebrating the fact that they've affirmed abortion. It, like what's in the news right now about how everybody's having a great time because we're going to be able to kill our babies right up to the time they're born. That's Moloch worship. We're also going to have Astra. Astra worship. Yeah, you know, LGBTQ, sexuality, you know, promiscuity, fertility, feels good, do it. This is the seed of Ephraim, the northern kingdom. Do we have any of those three things in our country, Charlie? Do we have a bull and materialistic centering of our interests? Do we Are, are we really hardworking people and all, all about our money? Do, do we love child sacrifice and do we get into all sorts of sexuality and promiscuity in a hookup society? Is any of that here? No, no, no. We wouldn't have any of that, like, you know, Bullet Wall Street and, you know, they've got other, you know. Stonewall. Yeah. 
Roe v. Wade. There's an arch there. That, yeah. yeah. Okay. We, yeah. yeah I, I was just curious. But now this is the center of all that stuff too, because this is the center of Ephraim, Israel, the Northern kingdom. Joe, this still hasn't got anything to do with Palestine. It's got everything to do with Palestine, folks. I told you, if you don't go back to the beginning, you're not going to understand this. Let's keep going. This is the conquest of the southern part of Canaan. And then the, the, the blue is the route of the Amorite, Amorites, and the red is the route of the Israelites. This is from the same, I put these in your homework. This is the northern conquests. Now, from there, we get to the forgotten kingdoms. The kingdoms of David and Solomon are intentionally left out of secular history. I want you to understand something real quick. A kingdom is not a nation. What? No, it isn't. A kingdom doesn't have hard set borders. A kingdom is that area which the king controls or has influence over. And on the edges of any kingdom, the edges are always going back and forth because other peoples on the edges of the kingdom will always dispute for that land. So at some point it might push in on the kingdom. Other points he might push them back out. A kingdom has no set borders. It's not like a nation the way we think of it today. So this is actually the kingdoms of Israel, not yet the nation. The nation of Israel has not quite yet been formed. I mean, it, it has and it hasn't. It's the area given to them by lot. That's the nation. Those were boundaries. There were hard boundaries set up there. But that's a nation within the kingdom. The kingdom is more than a nation. The United Kingdom was many nations. So you, you kind of, they're kind of the same and they're kind of not. They're a different, this is important spiritually. This is why there's no borders on a spiritual kingdom. There's an ebb and flow. I get more people believe me at this point in time, less people at that point in time. There's an ebb and flow on the borders, on the edges, on the peripheries. So this is important to understand. But now we're going to be looking at the two kingdoms that time has forgotten. This is David's kingdom. It's the time of his death. So in the center there, you know, Jerusalem actually has hard borders, you know, the, the lands of the tribes. That would be the physical nation of Israel. But this is the kingdom of David, the Davidic kingdom. And then this is Solomon. So he owned a good part of the land, controlled it. But we need to pay attention because there's more than just this. First Kings 4.21. Now Solomon was ruling over all the kingdoms of the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And all the earth was seeking the attention of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They also sent tribute, gold, and wives. A lot of Solomon's wives were more than likely, back in their day, you marry a princess into the kingdom so that you have a political allegiance with the king of that kingdom. Well, Solomon was so powerful, his navies sailed the world. We have found archaeological evidence of them in the Pacific Islands and all the way up into the Great Lakes of the United States and into the western deserts of the United States. You found Israeli kings from the time of David and Solomon. Those coins have been found in the, in the state of Florida, where I live, all throughout the United States. Markings. We know that Solomon spread the world. He spanned the world. But this is Solomon turns from God. Pay attention how. This is 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 8. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Amorite, Edomite, Sinanian, and Hittite women from the nations of which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They will certainly turn your head away to follow their gods. 
Okay. A lot of these women were probably given to him as wives to make political alliances with these countries. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, meaning from other nations, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. For Solomon became a follower of Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Amorites. That's connected to Moloch. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord of Yahweh and did not follow Yahweh fully as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab in the mountain that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abhorrent idol of the sons of Ammon. He also did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incest and sacrificed to their gods. He was told not to do this. He mixed with them. What's that got to do with anything, Joe? That's your Philistines today, Joe. Uh, folks, those are your Palestinians. They're of mixed blood, mixed lineage. Guess what else? Solomon had children with these women. They get mixed into the, the, the Judean Hebrew culture. This is why you can't trace Hebrews genetically. Because they're everybody, just as God, Yahweh, said they were. He said his kingdom is anybody who honors and worships him. It's, it's not an ethnicity. The Hebrew people are select. They're chosen people to be the nation that will bring his teachings to the world and keep the, the oracles, the scrolls, the scriptures. But they will be a nation of many peoples. It'll be a <gasps> melting pot. Y'all see the parallels? So from there, we have this. This is the Scythian migrations. This is going to start 745 BC. This starts about the time of the northern tribes being destroyed. And they go first to the area of Medea and then up into what becomes known as the Scythians. And then they cross the Caucasus Mountains. They become known as Caucasians. They go up to the Norway and the Scandinavians area where they become Anglo-Saxons, you know, part of Denmark and Air. And if they go through southern Europe into Germany and then through Spain, they become known as Gauls and, and both of these and Celts and both of these people are Scythians. We've covered this already. The divided kingdom. After Solomon dies, there's a tax revolt. Oh, geez. Everybody reunites in the land of England to become new, you know, the, the Israel, Israel in exile. And the crown is transferred and the breach is repaired and it lands back in the crown of England. And then England loses Ephraim and Manasseh to a tax revolt. Jeez, I see no parallels there. The kingdom of Judah and the house of Israel. Israel in blue, Judah in that orangish mustardy looking color over a tax revolt. The northern kingdom is apostate. They worship Jesus and, and Yahweh. Well, not, not the Messiah, but they, they're waiting on the Messiah, but they worship Yahweh their own way. They do it their way. Please excuse the way I'm going to put this because it's going to seem very vulgar to a certain group of people, but that blue northern kingdom is very Christian. What? Yeah, that's what yesterday's show is all about. Those people on the south, that's very, you know, what you think of as Jewish. No, that's very Torah. They stick to their faith, just like prophecy says they will. It says that when they return from Babylon, 
they'll return to their faith and they'll never leave again. Guess what they've never done? Now they've added to the law. Don't get me wrong. They're not perfect, but they've never abandoned the principles of Torah. Everybody else has just like the Northern kingdom did. This is why Jesus told the Samaritan woman, you don't know who or what you worship. Now this is important. This is one of the reasons that the Western world cannot see and understand what's going on in Israel today clearly because we're still partially blind, not the Jews, us. Yeah, I'm referencing Romans. 1772 BC, the Assyrians conquer Israel. And we start the migrations. And then from, from those migrations where they're deported, this is up around the Caspian Sea and all that covers the Scythians because Israel becomes the Scythians. Then there's the captivity of Judah. Babylon takes Judah away. So you go from Jerusalem up through, follow the Euphrates River into Babylon. Why is that important, Joe? Pay attention, boys and girls. Stick with me. And this is going to be more of the migrations. This is going to be after the fall of Babylon. They're they're trying to escape the fall of Babylon. So more up into the Caspian Sea, more of the Scythians. These are a couple of books that you might want to look at. The Origins and Empire of an Ancient Israel. This is by Stephen M. Collins. Israel's Lost Empires, also by him. He covers all the archaeology and the, the, the work that's been done to trace these folks. It's been It's actually been done. The academia ignores it, even though they're the ones who've actually found it. They just don't make the connections. But you also have this one by Collins as well. Parthia, the forgotten ancient superpower in its role in biblical history. Do you even know where Parthia was? <laughs> you call it Iran. Why is that important? Bible tells you that the majority of the, the Jews, the people from the southern kingdom, the house of Judah, stayed in Babylon. They didn't return. It was only about 70,000 people, I think, that returned somewhere in that neighborhood. Came back with uh, Nehemiah. And they restored the nation of Israel. But the majority stayed in Babylon. So when Jesus is born and the wise men come, the Magi, guess who they are? Those are, quote unquote, lost Jews, more than likely. They knew about all the oracles. They knew the signs of the scriptures. They knew what they were looking for. They never lost their faith entirely. So what we have now is we have the people, descendants of Abraham through Isaac, Hebrews, not just Jews. We've got Hebrews in the land of Scythia, the Caspian, what we would call the stands up there in, in parts of Turkey and Ukraine and in the Russian steppe. We've got them there. We've got them in uh, Spain. Greece, uh, Italy, they're up into the Scandinavian countries now. They've taken over parts of Iran. They're into Egypt. They're up in uh, all over through Great Britain. They're, they're all throughout the known world at the time. They even wander off, off into the Russian steppe, and some of them become the Huns or get mixed in with the Huns. A large part of them go off, and we know through archaeology and linguistic investigation that a large part of them formed what is now India large parts and they're very fruitful. So once they, what it is though, is they forget who they are over the years. They start adopting the local ways or the ways that they've created. This is part of the spiritual war that's going on. That is centered around Jerusalem. Just like the Bible tells us it would be. This is all about the struggle of Israel. <clears throat> now this is the dis- diaspora. This is after the fall 
of uh, Jerusalem, 70 AD, 135 AD, in that area, when Rome finally says enough. So look where they leave then. You see that little place called Carthage? The Carthage Empire? Yeah, the Carthaginians? <laughs> Primarily Hebrews. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. You need to study that history too. So all of this is where they go. And ever since, they've been a small minority of people, but they've driven those cultures. The Western world was built by Hebrews, not Greeks. Hebrews that became Hellenized adopted a lot of Greek thinking. But contrary to what the secular world will tell you, the Greeks didn't create the Western world. They had collapsed and the Romans took over. The Romans were not Greek. Now, they adopted a lot of the Greek culture. That's why it's called Greco-Roman history. But even then, their leadership families were Hebrew. This is all known, folks. And this is at the root of the current problem we have today. The continuation of the historic dispute. That's what this is all about. This conflict today should rightfully be seen as the continuation of the historic dispute that started thousands of years ago between Ishmael and Esau and the sons of Isaac. Today, the claim is this. Palestine, 1917 to today. Notice that they started in 1917, not with Ishmael. Not even with the king of Abimelech, with the king of Palestine, when supposed Palestine, when he gave the land to Abraham, told, told Abraham he can live there. Well, what the Palestinians will tell you, excuse me, is with the Balfour Agreement, then the Nakaba which is the attack on the, on the um, Jewish people, and then the occupation. So the green area is all the area that Palestinian people, poor Palestinian people, have lost to the Jews. This is another map of it. This is Israel's history of military expansionism. 1949, the blue area is Israel. 1967, look where it's at. And then in 82, oh, it's getting smaller. I thought this was military expansionism. In 2000, it gets smaller again. And then today, you know, I got a little newsflash for you folks. The today is a lie because it's today should look more like the one in 1949. Israel governs in the West Bank and in, in Gaza, but they don't control it. Those two, those two areas today, those are the nation of Palestine that was set up by Israel, not the UN. There's a lot of lies going on here. This is again, this is pop propaganda here. The green, that's the Palestinian area that was lost. And in, in the white, that's the area that the Israelites took. They're occupiers, right? Problem is, it's all lies. In 1946, the land was not Palestinian. It was British. That's true. In 1947, the truth that the Palestinians rejected the partition plan in favor of war. That's true. The green areas in uh, 1949 through 67, the green areas were occupied by Jordan and Egypt, not Palestine. That's true. And in 2000, the truth that the green areas are the first ever Palestinian rural areas, and they were created by Israel. Israel gave that land to them, allowed them to have it, and set up their own government. Now, they see it as occupation. That's not exactly what's going on. Now, this is after the restoration of the physical nation of Israel, folks. But this is a continuation of the battle that has been raging in this area since Abraham came out of Ur. <clears throat> Nothing new. Israel. This comes from a slideshow that's in your homework. 
let's go back a bit. 63 BC, the Romans occupy Israel. 37 to 4 BC, Herod the Great, king of Judea. The second temple renovation was started in 18 BC and would take 46 years, being completed after his death. Jesus was born in Bethlehem or somewhere around the area of 6 BC. 70 AD, the Romans under Titus captured Jerusalem. The Romans destroy the second temple. Comment on the board from James William Holt. Did they start the end of the Ottoman Empire? Uh, hold on, James. We're going to get to that. I'll be in the second hour. But that's in the that's in the lesson plan. You're ahead of the lesson plan. The nation of Israel's timeline, 135 AD. The Romans con conquered Israel. They finally kicked the, the final Maccabean revol revolts and everything. The Temple Mount was plowed and salted, and Jews were banished from Jerusalem on a pain of death. I covered this idea of salting before. Islam was established by Muhammad in Mecca, 6, 622 AD. Caliph Omar conquered Jerusalem in 638. 691, construction of the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aska Mosque. Muslims pres uh, presence established on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. 688 is actually when the Temple Mosque was started to be built. He'll hold his horses. Now, from then on, the Ottoman what, what would become the Ottoman Empire, the Caliphate ruled the Holy Land. They had taken it. Let me tell you, show you something real quick. Back here, after the Romans have conquered Israel, between there and 6, 622, nobody really rules Israel. It's kind of like a no man's land, and it falls under the rule of the Coptic Christian Church. So when Islam's established by Muhammad in Mecca, and then in 638, so 135 to 638 AD, it's basically under Christian rule, not Jewish. So when uh, Omar conquers Jerusalem, he's taking land that belonged to the Judeo-Christian faith and was in their hands at that time. So 1517. It's the start of a 400-year occupation of Palestine in Jerusalem by the Ottoman Turks, Turkish Empire. That's when the Turkish Empire comes up. Before this, it's the Caliphate, the Moors, and the Spain. This is this is all with the Crusades, all of that area in there. 1888, start of the first Aliyah. That's ascent, migration of Jews from the diaspora to the land of Israel. In 1888, they start coming back home. 1904, start of the second Aliyah. It's a second wave of Jews, mainly from Russia and Poland, migrated to Palestine, being driven by persecution. 1909, the first kibbutz, it's a settlement, was established in Galilee. 1914, 1918, World War I. 1917, the Battle of Jerusalem occurred during the British Empire's Jerusalem operations against the Ottoman Empire. General Edmund Allenby takes Jerusalem. Why is this important? This happens in World War I. It's a war. The Ottoman Empire is basically Turkey at this time, but it extends most of Northern Africa. They chose to fight on the side of Germany. They lost. You lose a war. Tough cookies, Jack. If I want to erase your nation, I get to do so. Shouldn't have gotten a war with me. You picked the wrong side. So whatever Britain does from that point on, Britain can legally do internationally in man's law. Also, by the way, a lot of times by God's law as well. So 1939-1945, World War II, the Holocaust. Six million Jews perished in the Nazi concentration camps. 1947, partition of the plan for Palestine. Palestine at this point is a British protectorate. It is not a nation. It's a region. 
1948, the state of Israel was declared. Israel was uh, proclaimed a state on 14 May 1948. I wonder how close that is to the birth of Abraham. 1949, Egyptian army defeated. Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon signed armistice agreements. Jerusalem divided Israel, controlled the West, the new city. Jordan occupied the old city in the East. This is the Balfour Agreement. The Balfour Agreement Declaration starts in 1917. This is after World War I. Palestine, freed from the Ottoman Empire rule by the British, became a mandate. And that mandate being the, the League of Nations at this time tells Britain, you're in charge of this. You govern this area. There was also a French mandate in this area as well. British Foreign Minister Arthur Balfour, British Foreign Minister, issued a declaration of support for the creation of the Jewish homeland in Palestine. Jewish homeland, not Palestinians. There's no such thing as Palestine. Never has been. That's what that other show was about. But without infringing on the rights of the existing non-Jewish communities, they had a plan for this. Tension grew as more Jews immigrated to Palestine after World War II. The British turned over the mandate to the UN. UN had now been formed. All right. On the left, Ottoman Empire, that dark grayish green color area. Notice that it controls Damascus, Jerusalem, Beirut, all the way down to Mecca. This is the last of the, of the caliphate that Muhammad and his people started. This is what lives. It is destroyed by the allies. It is totally done away with. It, this is after World War I, 1917 and all. But by 1924, the victorious allies destroy the Ottoman Empire and Turkey is formed. That's a head wound, a fatal head wound to that empire. It will later come back when Barack Obama and people operating from behind the scenes help to reestablish the caliphate in what you know as the Arab Spring. Now on the right, these are the protectorates. The green area, that's Italian protectorate, all the way down there on the bottom, just to the other side of the, of the Red Sea from Yemen. That will actually become part of World War II. They will be fighting down there. The British will be fighting down there in the beginning of World War II. Now, this Tanish area, next to the Italian part, down there on what was Yemen area, down the south part of Arabia, and then up there, what's called Palestine and Mesopotamia, Iraq. The British controlled that. Notice that that's the protectorate. These are the areas that, on the left, you see... No nations there. There was just areas. Arabia was ungoverned. The Ottoman Empire controlled that darkish gray area. Egypt controlled the area on the left. Italy still had the Albanian area. And then France gets this area that we know as Lebanon and Syria. We redrew borders. The Western allies, you know, France, Italy, uh, Britain, etc. We redrew boundaries in the interwar period between World War I and World War II. We redrew the boundaries of current modern Middle East. We did that on purpose to keep, and we intentionally, stupidity, but we intentionally included differing groups into those countries, thinking it would act as a check and balance. They'd fight each other rather than outside of their borders. But the area of Palestine is not a nation, it's a protectorate under British control. And this is where the modern day starts. But if you'll look, before the British have Palestine, there is no Palestine. There's the Ottoman Empire. And before the Ottoman Empire, there's no Palestine. There's just the region of Judea under Jewish Christian control. Before that, there was no... The, the reason where Palestine comes up as a, as a nomenclature, 
before the final revolt in 70 to 135 AD, the Romans called the area Judea. After the final revolt, the last vestiges of the Roman Empire renamed it Palestinia or Palestia as an insult to the Jews. That's where Palestine comes from. That's the first use of the word. Before then, it was Philistia, referring to the Philistines, not Palestia. Different words. I know they sound a lot alike, but it's different. Palestine has been, always has been, a political creation. It has never been a nation, ever, in the history of man, until Israel created it to try and make peace. Israel created the modern-day Palestine. Nobody else. Israel. We're going to go to the break. When we come back, we're going to pick up here, and we're going to continue forward. We're going to talk about this modern conflict. All of this comes from the past. I've told you before, the past drives the present. This is why Orwell said, if I can rewrite the past, I can affect the present. Because if I can teach you to believe the lies of the past, notice how the Palestinians always start with 1917 as the Balfour Agreement. Why? Well, if I go back any further than that, I run into the Ottoman Empire and there's no Palestine. Whoopsie! <laughs> See? If I can control the past, I can control the narrative today. Well, even before the Ottoman Empire, I go back to the Coptics. And before them, I go back to the Romans. And before that, to the Greeks. And before that, Babylonians and then the Assyrians. And eventually, I wind up with Israel. And Israel goes back before that, the Canaanites and the Philistines, in which the Philistine king told Abraham, you have my permission to live there. He never stole anything. The king of the area gave it to him. And then he changed his mind. And the fight's been on ever since. We'll see you in six minutes.
All right, folks. So let's pick up where we left off and get going again. The the next thing that happened. Okay, just we are after World War One, and the the British protectorate of what is known today as Palestine. This is this is the area that was originally sectioned out by the Balfour Agreement. This is the area. The area you're looking at right now in white was originally intended to be given to the Jews. Yes. This is the area that the people in England and the British wanted to give to the Jews. That's a lot of area, isn't it? It's a lot more than what Israel has today. Okay. So what happens is there's a lot of fighting that immediately causes an uproar. The Arabs are just not happy with that. So then they suggest this. The area in that darker yellowy mustardy color, we're going to give that to the Palestinians. And the area in white, we're going to give that to the Jews. This is a this this was the next s- suggestion. Well, this becomes Transjordan. Well, in the process, the area that Britain and the Balfour people, you know, Balfour Agreement and the Declaration of the British Empire, they're they're in charge of this area. They can do what they want with it. The UN told them so. Well, they wanted to give this dark mustardy color to the Palestinians. That would had the Palestinians accepted that, that Jordan would be Palestine today, not Jordan. But they didn't like that. So what happened is other Arab nations, Iraq, Syria, Arabia, Egypt, they moved in there and created Transjordan. Jordan is stolen from the original mandate. That that was done by hook and by crook. So the nation of Jordan, that's the true occupation from what the international community was trying to do at the time. This picture shows you. Jordan, originally set aside as part of the Jewish national home, Originally, was supposed to go to Jews. Jordan was ceded to the Arabs to satisfy their need for independence in Palestine. The Hashemite kingdom of Jordan is actually a Palestinian state. King Hussein of Jordan said in 1981, the truth is that Jordan is Palestine and Palestine is Jordan. Boom. Mic drop, strut off the stage. I win my argument because I'm just reciting what they've said with their own mouth. King Hussein of Jordan, 1981, admitted that they took that from what was supposed to have been the Jews. So here's what finally happens. This is the final solution in 47-48. Now we're going to let this darker gray area, this is going to be Palestine, and the white area, that's the little area that the Jews are going to get. Did you notice what we went from? We went from all of that to the Jews down to they get this. Now, the majority of this is mountain and desert. You can't live there. Not very well. And the Jews were happy with us. They were going to go inhabit deserts and mountains. There was nothing green in these areas. Not really. Now, the areas that are in that dark gray Gaza and the Western Bank, the Arabs were living there because that's the naturally fertile area of this part of the world. Remember, their prophetic nature is that there will be no dew And they will not be very good agricultural people. They'll have no dew. They'll have no blessing. They can't live off the land. So they have, they they can't, they're not farmers. They have to live where it grows naturally. And that they're all going to be people that live by the sword. And they're always going to be fighting with everybody around them. They've been following their prophetic nature since Ishmael and Esau. So they give this to the Jews and within a few years, now they immediately say, I don't even want the Jews here in the, in the deserts, in the wasteland. That's not, that's not good enough. So they immediately start a war. 
But after that war ends, within the next couple of decades, this land blooms and it becomes fertile like never before. I mean, it, it, Israel is one of the world's, if the United States disappears, the land of Israel is the world's largest exporter of fruit and flowers, just like the Bible said it would be. The bloom, blooming of the desert is a biblical prophecy. Not just the creation of the nation of Israel, but the blooming of the desert is all biblical prophecy thousands of years ago. Now, this is the Arab state in orange, Jewish state in red, roughly. This is the UN partition line for Palestine, 1947. And the red is what the Arabs say Jews, Israel should have. Okay, this is just a quick list of the wars that have been fought ever since. So in 1946, foundation of Israel, we start a we start a war with the Arabs. The Arabs start a war with Israel, and in the 1967, there's a six day war. The Arabs attack Israel again. 1973 again. 1993, there's a the Oslo peace treaties. In 97, construction of Palestine. Israel creates Palestine. 2000, supposedly Israel attacks, but you need to go back and this is propaganda too, though, folks. But every one of these things here, suicide bombings, the United Nations, blah, blah, blah. All of this is preeminent, uh, started by other people. Here's your current boundaries. Current boundaries defined by past wars. So in the first, on the left, that's the picture that the UN wanted to create and did. 48, 49. This is what it looks like after the Israelites are attacked by the Arabs. So that's the area that the Jewish people won after they were attacked. They become a nation, Arabs attack. This is the area they win after their um, war of, of, of independence. Then they get attacked in 1967. So that area there in, in the third picture is the area they occupy in 67. Now there are struggles and battles and fights between 79, 93, and 2000. And Israel is essentially forced to give up that land by the international community and now they're back to what you see on the right now there's a passage in the bible that says woe to those who divide my land well that's going to include a lot of american presidents and a lot of leaders of the west let's go through this a little bit the first arab israeli war this is after they're declared independent this is all the, 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 the you don't have to read it it's not important the area inside the blue highlights is the little bit of area that the Jews were given. All these red arrows, that's an attack by Arabs. They had they had tanks and planes, and they were fairly well supplied because they had the remnants of both the Allied and Axis armies available to them. Israel had to defend itself with old American equipment that it scrounged from southern Europe after stuff that was left after World War I, uh, World War II. And Israel actually, some of the planes it fought for its own independence with were Nazi airplanes. Some of the first fighters in the Israeli army were Nazi ME-109 derivatives with new engines. So they used the weapons of the people who tried to kill them in the Holocaust. They had to scrounge everything they could together to do this. Now, in this war and another war, every, everybody had to fight. Women, men, everything. I think 63... The today, I believe, is she is. We'll, we'll cover this in a minute. The 1963 war, but one of the most famous snipers in Israel's history, modern history, sniper. She's female. She had over 60 confirmed kills. 
She's a little bitty diminutive thing. You know her as Dr. Ruth. Yes, Dr. Ruth, the sex therapist. When she was younger, she was holy terror on Israel's enemies. But this is why Israel has always has to fight. Everybody has to fight because there's not enough people over there. The War of Israeli Independence, 1948. The first Egyptian Air Force struck Tel Aviv. Soon after, the forces from Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia all attacked. Most analysts felt that the more numerous and better equipped Arabs would overwhelm the Israelis. Israelis. Easy. They didn't. Israel won. Everybody forgot to account for who fights on the side of Israel. Again, 1947, the United Nations partition. The Arab armies invade in the middle. This is July 1948, after the Israeli counterattacks. So on the left is what Israel starts with, and on the right, that all that area in, in yellow and orangish colors, that's what they gain. The land that the Arabs lost was their fault. International law recognizes this. Tough. Tough. So sad for you. You lost it. Shut up. But no, the world doesn't want to do that. The world's going to side with the Arabs. So the end of Israel's independence war. When Israel's independent war ended in March 49, the area held by Israel was 20,500 uh, 20, square kilometers, an increase of 37% of what the UN had allocated to the Jewish state in the UN's 1947 partition plan, and a 50% decrease of what the Arab state per the UN partition plan. The decision by the Arab state not to accept partitions in 47 and to go to war resulted in the land lost and the Arabs' flight from Palestine. In 1950, Jordan annexed the West Bank and Egypt controlled the Gaza Strip. That means that today, Gaza, you know, in 1950, Egypt took over Gaza, took over what was Palestinian, and Jordan took the West Bank. Israel never occupied those, not from the Palestinians. It was other Arabs. Always going to have their hand raised against each other. Always. Even against each other. Arabs are not a unified people. They're not even an ethnicity, not in the way we think about it. The only way you get an ethnicity out of the Arab people is if you do it spiritually, which is why I look at it this way. But this is a case of Israel didn't occupy this. They lost it. Israel took it from them when they were attacked. Now we have the Six-Day War. This is where we get Dr. Ruth from. Once it became clear that the diplomatic campaign had failed, this is after the Six-Day War starts, June 5th, June 10th, 1967. Once it's failed, the following, the, uh, following Jordan's participation in the Egyptian-Syrian alliance, Israel launched an action in self-defense against the, uh, the massive threat from Egypt on June 5th, 1967. Once Jordan and Syria initiated the fighting against Israel, the war also included those countries. In the course of the war, Israeli forces reached the Suez Canal and captured the territories of Judea, Samaria, as well as the Golan Heights from which Syria had shelled Israel. So all of the area here, both in blue and yellow, falls under Israeli control. They even retook Mount Hermon. That's important. <laughs> There's it. War ends. Total Israeli victory. This was an amazing victory. This should not have happened, but it did. Before and after the Six-Day War, that's Israel before, and on the right, that's Israel after. So all that little green area, that's what Israel gains. Okay, why didn't they keep it? 
They should have. That's part of the holy land that was promised by, by Yahweh to Abraham. Not all of it, but part of it. The Arabs lost that land again because they attacked Israel. Well, now there are several six-day war miracles here. The first of them is in 1967, the liberation of Jerusalem, all of it. And the, 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 it is a miracle, folks. On June 6th, D-Day, anniversary of D-Day, 1967, all of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount is back in Israeli hands. The Yom Kippur War. 1973, Arab-Israeli War. This is going to be attacked by Egypt's attack on the left. Egypt comes from the west on the left-hand side and attacks Israel. And on the right, that's the Syrian attack. Now, this one should have wiped Israel off the map. Literally, seriously, it should have. It didn't. The Yom Kippur War, 1973. With the tide of the battle turning, Israel went on the offensive. Brigadier General Ariel Sharon cleared a corridor through the Egyptian defenses to the east bank of the canal, and Israeli divisions began crossing the canal. Had they kept going, they would have taken part of Egypt. Israel was also experiencing success in the Golan Heights and captured Mount Hermon on the north end of the heights, but could not advance further into Syria. This is part of the Yom Kippur War, This the, the war in 73. Gives you a flowchart. Egypt and Syria attack. Syria captures southern Golan Heights. Israel launches the first counterattack. The U.S. sends additional arms to Israel. I will bend the bow of Judah, and I will fill it full of the arrow of Ephraim. First, Israel troops cross the Suez Canal, and then the, the Arab nations um, cut oil production until Israel withdraws. There's Arab influence on the, on the West in the way that will make us react. So they, take the, they cut the oil production to force the West to shut Israel down, just like what we're doing again now. We do this every time. Israel goes to defend itself. The Arab nations scream to the West, hey, and we lean on Israel to quit. Israel should be allowed to destroy Hamas. We won't let them. We're a dualistic people. We're stupid. Hey, fighting continues despite the ceasefire, and finally the ceasefire is play in play, whatever. This is just a map of the attack. This is what happens. Now, over here on the right, this is the end of the war. That little bit of land is allowed. On the left, you see where Israel got across the Suez and took that. They could have kept that land, too. But a little bit of this is allowed to, to Egypt to keep it after the war so that they can claim victory. Here's what you need to understand about the miracle of the Yom Kippur War. At the time this starts, there are only 3 million people living in Israel at the time. Only 3 million. During the war, they suffered 2,688 fatalities. The Egyptians are thought to have involved 80,000 people in their attack. Israel reservists defended the Sinai against the entire Egyptian army. 436 men stopped 80,000. Until Israel could mobilize and, and counterattack, 436 men held back 80,000. There were 8,000 Israelis wounded in this time. 293 were, taken, were captured. 20 days of war. It was even more miraculous in the Golan Heights. You can find stories of this. This was a tank battle. Israel should have got its butt whipped up there. They were outnumbered, in some cases, 20, 30 to 1. In a tank battle, you lose. There's one record up there where one single Israeli tank, a Saturian made by the Brits, held off the entire Syrian army for a couple of days by itself. It was, what happened in the Golan Heights was nothing short of a miracle. But also this, 
this comes from an article, Golda Meir and the Miracle of the Yom Kippur War. So President Richard Nixon was not famous for his love of Jewish people, but remarkably, he had been prepared for this hour since his childhood. He agreed to help with an enthusiasm few could understand. He says, I could almost hear my mother, this is Nixon saying, I could almost hear my mother's voice. She would tell me stories and read to me from the Old Testament, the heroes of the Bible. And one afternoon she said, Richard, someday you're going to be in a position where you can help save the Jewish people. And when that day comes, you must do everything in your power. He armed Israel. And Golda Meir later said, for generations to come, all will be told of the American miracle of the immense plains of the United States bringing in materials that meant life to our people. It was nothing for Truman to recognize Israel. Truman was a very religious man. If you know the history of Nixon, this is another miracle. So you have military miracles and you also have political miracles. And Israel is preserved. Well, guess what else you have here that nobody wants to talk about? You have both sides of this, this conflict in the newspaper reporting that they, they saw strange things in the sky on the airplanes and, and all the battles. And they were Israel and Arab were both reporting that God was fighting in this war. They were reporting all sorts of miracles on the battlefield. Exactly what the Bible might lead us to believe we should be looking for. You think there's a reason you can't defeat Israel now. After the 1973 war, Israel in 48, then Israel in 1967, after the Six-Day War, that's that gray area, and then the land has to be returned because the West forces Israel to do so. Israel had a right to keep that, should have. We would have included the Goddess of Strip. We wouldn't even be in this argument right now where we're at. The West has perpetuated this fight. The West has sided with Islam. The two-horned lamb beast has stood in the presence of the beast beast and given it in a mouth to speak and brought it back to life. This fits with that understanding of prophecy. You are looking at revelations more than likely. I can't promise you this, but if you were with us in the summer and we went through the 15 steps of the book of Revelation according to Schofield, how he sees it, this fits perfectly. The Western world, two horns like a lambkin, you know, looks like the like Jesus. You got the Catholic and Protestant churches standing in the presence of the beast, in the presence of Islam, letting it talk, giving it a voice, standing it back up and breathing it, breathing life into it again, and causing the world to worship the beast, causing the world to agree with worship and kowtow to Islam. Should have sided with Israel. We are still not doing that. If you side against Israel, you are for the enemy. Spiritually, folks, I don't. you don't have to agree. These people do. That's all that matters. History of Israel and Palestine here, the Balfour Declaration, 1917-18, State of Israel, 1948, Six-Day War in 67, Yom Kippur in 73. Since then, the first Antifada in 87, Israel defended itself. The Oslo Peace Accords, where a lot of that land has to be given back. Second Intifada, 2001-2002, Israel defends itself. Palestinian proposal of a unilateral declaration of statehood. And Israel gives it a statehood. And they still aren't happy. How much more has to be given to these people? It doesn't matter. During these other little conflicts with the intifadas and all, this is a this is a new paper, newspaper. July uh, 16th, 18th, and whatever, 2014. 
Their God, this is an Arab newspaper, says their God changes the path of our rockets in midair, said a terrorist. He's talking about Yahweh, God of Israel. This was widely reported. Weird things were happening in the sky again. Why aren't we reporting that? It goes against the law. Of, oh, well, the missile malfunctioned. No, it didn't. You will see it however way you want to choose to see it. If you have spiritual eyes to see, you'll see what it is. But this right here, this is why. Israel, you've been fighting Palestine for about 60 years now, using advanced weapons and America's financial aid against us. A country that has no army, no weapons, no money, and no central government. And you still man haven't managed to win. When will you get it? You can't beat a country that is protected by Allah. Well, then, how come you haven't beaten Israel? And why are you saying that Allah stops your missiles? Eh, I, I think he's on the wrong side. This is Ishmael. This is Ishmael. Ishmael wants nothing less than the total destruction of the, of the Jews. Mahmoud Abbas, a Palestinian state like Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and other Islamic countries will not have or allow a single Jew to live there. So when Palestine establishes itself... They think they need to kick every Jew out of the nation, out of their little country. And since they claim the Jewish land as well, they want the Jews out of there as well. This is just a political agenda of people wanting you to give them what they're not strong enough to take. They're parasites. They're leeches. These are good little Marxists, good little progressives. It's the same spirit, folks. It's the same spiritual way of doing things. Now, 67. When Jerusalem was uh, taken back, June 1967, Israel versus Arab Six-Day War. Defense minister, well, whatever his name was, he's watching the Israeli flag rising above the Muslim Dome of the Rock through binoculars from Mount Scopus. He urgently radios Gur and demands, do you want to set the Middle East on fire? Remove that flag. Um, folks, that is proof that Israel now controls the Dome of the Rock mosque. So, so 53 years, Jews have been banned from praying on their own temple mount that's controlled by Muslims. That's the fault of the Knesset because they're afraid that God won't protect them. Yahweh won't protect them in a war against Islam. Even after they've seen him protect them in the Six-Day War. But what that tells me is that anytime that Israel wants to do so, they can wipe that mosque off that temple mount anytime they want, but they won't. They're afraid. Material view of looking at the world. And finally, that brings us to this. This is what it's all about. That little strip of Gaza right now. There are luxury resorts on the coast. There's an international airport. The water and electricity is provided by Israel. They, they, I mean, everything you want. It's, it's not bad for an uh, open-air prison. They've got industry. They've got they've got everything they need to be an oasis on the Mediterranean, except they keep voting for people who want to destroy Israel, and are willing to destroy them them in the process of doing so. What Hamas is doing right now is inviting Israel to to cause as many casualties in Gaza as possible, because that's the only way they can win the the propaganda war in the world, to to get the West to actually do their fighting for them again, yet again. They want the two-horned lambkin beast to fight for their beast again. I thought Allah was all-powerful. Let Allah beat Israel. Quit looking to the West to do that for you. Hmm.
happen. What you're seeing today, what you've always seen in the Middle East, it's just a continuation of what started back with Ishmael. Even before that, Abraham and Abimelech. It's been going on for eons. It's a spiritual battle. It's a fight over the land. And everybody claims that the Israelis took it. Israel comes from Abraham. Abraham was given it because the king of Abimelech tried to steal Abraham's wife and commit adultery with her. Basically, rape her. Kind of interesting. That's exactly how Muhammad did things. And they're genetically linked, not through you know genetics of the flesh, but spiritually. If you're going to look at this secularly, eh, good luck. You won't make heads or tails of it. You look at this spiritually, all falls into place. Comment on the board from William Holt. This is James William Holt. The crazy thing is that the liberals will post pictures of Arab cities in the 50s and 60s and contrast them with pictures from today to try and show how Western influences destroyed these cities without first acknowledging that Western influences in the 50s and 60s is what made those Arab cities modern and functional in the first place. Yes. Plus, the destruction of those cities comes from the Arabs, not the West. It's like if you give control of a great industrial city like Detroit to a progressive who is a spiritual Arab, they are. Progressives are always fighting amongst themselves. They've got their hand raised against everybody. They can't grow anything. They can't make anything. They share. A progressive is a Canaanite or an Esanite. You know, Mo, uh, Esau from Edomite. That's what they are. You know, they're a thorn in our flesh. What? Yes. Arctic tortoise. Shin Bet reveals a senior Hamas terrorist hides in Gaza hospitals, uses ambulance as military strategy. Yes. And in schools. But the progressives, when they take over, they ruin the place. They're just locust. They just devour the land. The same thing Islam does. They don't, it, it, it's, it's the prophetic nature of their people. The blessing of Esau and the curse of, and the prophecy of Ishmael, they, they coincide and those people married in together. They create the Arab world. And I can't make this any clearer. I've done my best today. And we're almost done unless somebody has something on the board or a phone call or a comment, but we're almost done for today. I'm going to go into a long weekend. I kind of need a break, folks. But I've done my best to try and explain to you how I see this. I see this in the long view from the geosynchronous orb of history, looking down and seeing the whole course of history. Beck did this when he's like the man on the moon, looking down and watching human history over time. That was his thing about trying to show human hit, but he didn't connect it to scripture. I do. The Bible is my Rosetta Stone. That's how I interpret everything in history now. I look at it from that perspective. And as soon as I learned to do that, a lot of things that used to puzzle me just started falling into place. Click, 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 click. Consistent, coherent, logical, non-contradictory. It doesn't mean I have every little detail. I'm not claiming that. Don't get me wrong. But this is the only way to understand that conflict over there. And it's the only way to understand that this conflict will not end until one side is dead. And that's why everybody's after Israel. This time, Israel wants to totally eradicate Hamas. They've had enough. So all of her Canaanite enemies around the world are coming after her, like Biden and the American left. Yep, they're already calling for a ceasefire. Yep. If you side with Palestine or Hamas or any of, if you side against Israel, 
You can claim to be Christian or Jew all you want. You're not. Not my words. Yahweh's. The Elohim of the Bible. The creator of this universe according to scripture. If you're against Israel, if you bless Israel, I'll bless you. If you curse Israel, I'll curse you. Yeshua. If you're with me, you're on our side. If you're not against me, you're on my side. But if you're against me, you're on the other side. There's only two sides of this war. Team Yahweh and everybody else. Everybody else is in the kingdom of Satan. Satan. So if you go to church every Sunday and you're siding with Hamas, be gone from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Don't be surprised when you hear that. If you're a Jew and you're against what Israel's doing, you're a fake Jew. You got a problem with that? Don't get mad at me. Talk to the person in your mirror. I'm just fire's hot, water's wet. I'm reading the rule book. Sit right here on my shelf. Team Yahweh, Team Satan. End of story. If you're a secularist, I don't believe in either one of them, Joe. Congratulations, Team Satan. I didn't say that. Yes, you did. No, I, Joe, you, uh-uh. Not my words. Theirs. Doesn't matter what you believe. Matters what that says. Doesn't matter if you believe the spiritual aspect of the war right now between Hamas and Israel. Matters what they believe. There is to it. Unless we have something else, Charlie, I think it's a wrap for the day. Choose you this day. Yes, JMW. Choose you this day whom you support. Yes. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Okay. Hmm. I think our dodo cop is exposing himself. <laughs> We're going to call this one a wrap for today, folks, unless somebody comes up with something real quick. Charlie, you have anything you want to add or ask? We good? I think we'd be good. We're having a long weekend, so... Uh... We'll see everybody Monday. Yep. See you Monday. Yep. I'm going to go have myself some crayon cake. We love each <laughs> and every one of you. We thank you for being here. If you like what we're doing, give us the thumbs up sign that, you know, that tells me and Charlie and Natasha who took the day off tells us we're doing okay. Share the show with those who you think it'll help. Um, if you can afford to do so, go to the donut page and set up a $5 a month reoccurring donation. It helps us pay the bills. Otherwise folks, you all stay safe. Have a good long weekend. At least I'm having a long weekend. We'll see you Monday. I got a manic Monday in store for you. <laughs> We're going to go totally political. I want to talk about GOP traders. Yeah, I want to talk about GOP traders. So let me bring you a whole bunch of stories Monday. We're going to go back a few years, but we're going to show you a theme. And uh, we'll go from there. See you all Monday. Y'all take care. Stay safe. Bye-bye. <laughs>